The following is a sermon from the Edgington Evangelical Presbyterian Church in Taylor Ridge, Illinois. Well, it's time to open up God's Word. Let me invite you to take your copy of the Scriptures and open with me to Genesis 27. If you need a Bible, get one from the rack in front of you and open up to page 21, Genesis 27. We are returning to the book of Genesis and our sermon series, Generations of Grace, looking at the lives of the second and third generation patriarchs, uh, Isaac and Jacob. Now, uh, many of you watch... Uh, series of shows, and oftentimes when there's a new season of shows, the, the next season begins with a recap of the previous season, or sometimes when TV episodes are in two parts, you begin with the previously on such and such. Well, it's been a while since we were in the book of Genesis, so you're going to get a previously in Genesis uh, uh, review from me here for just a second. So as you're going to Genesis 27, here is a previously on the generations of grace. The family of the patriarchs is the family of the people of God, beginning all the way back in Genesis chapter 12 with the man Abram, known then later as Abraham, who he and his wife Sarah were given a covenant promise from God that they would have land, children, and be a blessing to all nations. Uh, but the firstborn son by Sarah's maid Hagar bore Ishmael, and Ishmael was not the son of the covenant, not the son of the promise. The promised son would come from Abraham and Sarah, despite their age, 90 and 100 years old, according to God's promise. So at the spry age of 100, Abraham and Sarah have a son, Isaac. Isaac goes on himself to marry Rebekah, and Isaac and Rebekah... They have twin sons named Esau and Jacob. Esau, of the two twins, is born first, so he's the older, and Jacob, Esau's twin, is born second, but born holding on to his elder brother's, his twin brother's heel. But God's purpose of the covenant and God's purpose of His promises would be that Jacob would be the covenant son, not Esau. God's purpose is that the line of promise go from Abraham to Isaac to Jacob, which is going to establish a lifetime of tension between the twin brothers Jacob and Esau. If you look back in Genesis 25, at the end of that chapter, you find uh, one of the important uh, chapters of that reality where Jacob tricks Esau into selling off his birthright. A birthright would be Esau's right as the firstborn son to have the primary double share of the inheritance of his father's household. And his father was Isaac, who would be Abraham's son, who had amassed a vast fortune. And Esau sells off his birthright and all of that for the bare price of a cup of lentil stew. Because to Esau, to belong to this family is worth less to him than a cup of stew. So he's willing to exchange all of the birthright for a cup of stew back in Genesis 25. But in addition to this birthright controversy is a blessing controversy. Because in the ancient Near East, in family structures, a father had both a birthright and a blessing to pronounce upon his family. And the birthright would belong to the firstborn son normally, but the blessing could be distributed amongst the family or to a particular chosen child. And so in ancient Near East families, there was both birthright and blessing that children would, in a sense, 
compete for amongst their families. We saw that Jacob tricked Esau out of his birthright. Jacob now possesses the birthright of the second-born son, but according to God's promise, in Genesis 27, you have the next major episode of controversy between these two twins, the, the blessing controversy. So, this is where we will find the father imparting the favor of a prosperous life. That's what a blessing would be. Birthright and blessing. The birthright would secure the inheritance, but the blessing would ensure the future prosperity of the child. As the father says, I would bless you. Birthright and blessing. The birthright controversy happened in Genesis 25. The blessing controversy is in Genesis 27. This passage of Scripture makes all soap operas boring. Okay? Daytime television writers cannot hold a candle to God's Word when it comes to drama, when it comes to tension, when it comes to multi-generational strife. The Bible's not boring. Other things are boring. This is dramatic as it can possibly be for families and nations at this time. So, with all of that recap in mind, uh, let's hear God's Word, but first, let us pray and ask God's blessing upon it. Heavenly Father, we, we thank You for the privilege of being gathered together corporately on the Lord's Day, and we thank You for the wonderful joy of a church in which we can do so and sit under the authority of the Scriptures. We thank You for a church body that believes Your Word, and we thank You for a church that holds fast to it as our authority. And so we pray now, Lord, that You would, by Your Holy Spirit, who lives within us, also descend upon us and unite us together, that we might by faith receive these words as the words of truth and then have them be planted within us as seed, finding good soil in our hearts, that we might be those who receive the word with faith and trust and obedience, leading to righteousness. And so, Lord, bless Your word to Your people. Illuminate our minds that we might receive it with faith, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. And now hear God's Word. Genesis 27, we'll be looking at the first 29 verses under the heading, Isaac blesses Jacob. Hear the Word of God. When Isaac was old and his eyes were dim so that he could not see, he called Esau, his older son, and said to him, My son, and he answered, Here I am. He said, Behold, I am old, and I do not know the day of my death. Now then, take your weapons, your quiver and your bow, and go out to the field and hunt game for me, and prepare for me delicious food, such as I love, and bring it to me, so that I may eat, that my soul may bless you before I die. Now Rebekah was listening when Isaac spoke to his son Esau. So when Esau went to the field to hunt for game and bring it, Rebekah said to her son Jacob, I heard your father speak to your brother Esau. Bring me game and prepare for me delicious food, that I may eat it and bless you, before the Lord, before I die. Now, therefore, my son, obey my voice as I command you. Go to the flock and bring me two good young goats so that I may prepare from them delicious food for your father such as he loves. And you shall bring it to your father to eat so that he may bless you before he dies. But Jacob said to Rebekah, his mother, Behold, my brother Esau is a hairy man, and I am smooth man. Perhaps my father will feel me, and I shall seem to be mocking him and bring a curse upon myself and not a blessing. His mother said to him, Let your curse be on me, my son. Only obey my voice and go bring them to me. And so he went and took them and brought them to his mother, and his mother prepared delicious food, such as his father loved. 
Then Rebekah took the best garments of Esau, her older son, which were with her in the house, and put them on Jacob, her younger son. And the skins of the young goat she put on his hands and on the smooth part of his neck. And she put the delicious food and the bread which she had prepared into the hand of her son Jacob. So he went into his father and said, My father, and he said, Here I am. Who are you, my son? Jacob said to his father, I am Esau, your firstborn. I have done as you told me. Now sit up and eat of my game, that your soul may bless me. But Isaac said to his son, How is it that you have found it so quickly, my son? He answered, Because the Lord your God granted me success. Then Isaac said to Jacob, Please come near that I may feel you, my son, to know whether you are really my son Esau or not. So Jacob went near to Isaac his father, who felt him and said, The voice is Jacob's voice, but the hands are the hands of Esau. And he did not recognize him because his hands were hairy like his brother Esau's hands. So he blessed him. He said, Are you really my son Esau? And he answered, I am. And he said, Bring it near to me that I may eat of my son's game and bless you. So he brought it near to him, and he ate, and he brought him wine, and he drank. Then his father Isaac said to him, Come near and kiss me, my son. So he came near and kissed him. And Isaac smelled the smell of his garments and blessed him and said, See, the smell of my son is the smell of a field that the Lord has blessed. May God give you of the dew of heaven and of the fatness of the earth and plenty of grain and wine. Let people serve you and nations bow down to you. Be Lord over your brothers, and, you, and may your mother's sons bow down to you. Cursed be everyone who curses you, and blessed be everyone who blesses you. Amen. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the Word of God abides forever. Uh, do keep your Bible open there in Genesis 27 so you can follow along this really dramatic narrative. Uh, this is one of those stories of the Old Testament that... Um, oftentimes uh, we come across perhaps in Sunday school or we learn about, uh, but it, it makes an indelible mark upon us, uh, this, this trickery that's present here. You see the sermon title, Drama, Drama Everywhere and No One Innocent to be Found. Uh, I want us to see this under three headings. One, a blessed mess. Secondly, boundless guilt. And then finally, blessed redemption. Uh, first of all, a blessed mess. What's the point of this <laughs> part of this chapter. Well, we could say a couple of things, but first of all, it's dangerous to have favorite children. You're not supposed to have favorite children, uh, though some people might admit that in a moment's time they might prefer one or the other. Perhaps you're not supposed to have favorites. Look what it can do to you. What's happening here um, is, is deeply connected to what has happened throughout several chapters of this narrative here, but essentially... Jacob uh, is uh, the one that we focus on, but really let's focus first of all on what Isaac is doing. Isaac is Jacob's father. In spite of the promise given to Isaac and Rebekah, uh, do flip back first to Genesis 25 and look at Genesis 25 verse 23. Because when Rebekah found out that she had twins in her womb, the Lord spoke to these expectant parents with this particular oracle, this particular word, in Genesis 25, verse 23, the Lord says to her, that is Rebekah, two nations are in your womb. Rebekah is pregnant now with these twins. And two peoples from within you shall be divided. The one shall be stronger than the other, and the older shall serve the younger. 
So before these twins are born, Isaac and Rebekah are given God's word, this particular oracle that says, where although in every instance the firstborn son has priority, your twins, which will be born at separate times, the older will serve the younger. So it is the younger son that is going to have prominence, priority, covenantal order, and the covenantal promise will go through the second son rather than the first, namely Jacob rather than Esau. But in spite of the fact that, Je- uh, that Isaac knows this, in spite of the fact that Jacob was to be the son of the covenant promise, Isaac intends to pass his blessing to Esau against God's word. The firstborn and apparently favorite son of his father was Esau. Look again in Genesis 27. It says, When Isaac was old and his eyes were dim so that he could not see, he called Esau his older son and said to him, My son, Esau says, Yes, he intends to bless him. In verse 4, Prepare for me delicious food such as I love and bring it to me so that I may eat it, that my soul may bless you, Esau. Isaac knows that the blessing is supposed to go to Jacob. But Isaac intends that the blessing go to Esau. Isaac's favorite son is Esau, in other words. Now, mom overhears this. Rebecca overhears all of this, and she has a different favorite child, and in light of that, a different plan. And so Rebecca, overhearing Isaac's plan to bless Esau, gathers up the second-born son, Jacob, and she says, listen, verse 6 and 7, here's your father's plan. I heard what he's going to do. Verse 8, I've got a different plan. Listen up, Jacob. This is what we're going to do. Verse 9 and 10, she says, I'm going to make your dad the goat stew that he wants so much that apparently Esau likes to make for him. And you take it to him and bam, you'll get the blessing instead of the older son. That's the plan. That's what we're going to do. Jacob essentially responds in verses 11 and 12. Okay, cool plan, mom, but um, dad's eyesight is bad and all, but he's going to know that it's me rather than Esau. Right? Apparently Esau is really hairy. He's got all that arm hair after all. Jacob seems to have some kind of a moral scruple with all of this, saying, I don't know, Mom, about all of this. And essentially, Rebecca answers, don't worry about any of that. If the plan goes bad, it'll be on me. Let the curse be upon me. Look at that in verse 13. Let your curse be upon me, my son. This is the plan. We're going to do it. I'm going to give you goat skins to mimic Esau's arm hair. You go give your dad the stew. Pretend to be Esau and secure the blessing for you. Rather than Esau. That's the drama. So I hope we're all up to speed with the plan and how it happens. And you know what? It works. Their plan works. Because Isaac is a man that is misled by his senses. We're told in verse 1 that he can't see. That his eyes are dim so that he could not see. We also find that he seems to not be able to smell or taste the difference between soup prepared by his wife instead of his son. So that's not a good thing. It also seems that Isaac's touch is deceived because he mistakes goat skin for Esau's arm hair being worn by Jacob. And even though Isaac's hearing seems to be the best of all of his faculties, giving him the impression that it's actually Jacob's voice speaking to him rather than Esau, Isaac is willing to be deceived by his other senses, disbelieve his ears, blesses Jacob, believing that it's Esau who has foiled him according to Rebekah's purposes. Now that's really something. And uh, you know what? 
none of us are likely to see this family drama play out in our homes this afternoon. So we're, we're likely to think this seems to be somewhat irrelevant or of a distant past or not really applicable to the church today. What's the point of all of this? Well, first of all, that blessed mess, but as we, in a sense, put it under our review and we take a step back and consider this episode, I want us to see not just the blessed mess, but secondly, this boundless guilt. This whole situation is a mess. This entire episode is a mess of cheating and lying, and you may be tempted to approach it and ask, who's to blame here? Who's wrong? What's the answer? Everybody. Everybody. But you know what? We often ask, okay, yeah, but who's most wrong, right? Because, oh, yeah, 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 sure, everybody's at fault, but we'd love to find out Who's most at fault? So we know who's really to blame. We love to do that with all sets of circumstances. So who's to blame here? Answer, everyone. Who's most to blame here? Answer, everyone. Everybody in this text is self-seeking, self-trusting, self-serving, each and every one of them. Consider each one individually. First of all, Isaac. Isaac. Why is Isaac willing to disobey God's word and give the blessing to Esau rather than Jacob when he knows that it's God's purpose that Jacob would be the blessed covenant son. He liked Esau's hunting skills and he preferred the stew that Esau could make. He knew it was wrong. He knows it's wrong, which is why he intends to do it in private, because this blessing ceremony would have normally been done in the presence of the entire family where everybody could see. But instead, uh, Isaac connives with Esau and says, let's do it in quiet. Come into my bedroom and we'll do it in there. Isaac makes the plan to do it away from everyone, I don't want to upset your mother, after all, perhaps, she thinks. I want to say very clearly that the Bible does not excuse Isaac for this episode. Isaac is in the wrong here. Isaac is sinning here to disobey God's word. What about his wife? What about Rebecca? Why did Rebecca scheme? Rebecca is presented as really this very manipulative scheming one. She knows the word from God, and she knows the same thing because she was told just like Isaac was, but maybe we could assume her best intentions, and she doesn't want her husband Isaac to make the mistake of blessing the wrong son when they both know that God intends that Jacob should be the blessed one, and Rebecca is just looking out for her husband who's making a misstep, and she wants him to make the right step and intends to deceive him in order that he not make the wrong move. Maybe. Maybe, and that is in fact assuming the best of motivations. What we do know is that Rebecca is willing to go to great lengths to see the blessing pass by Esau and come to Jacob. And again, the text simply reports her actions without comment, but let it be clear, Rebecca is also violating God's word here. Rebecca is also sinning here in this instance. And from this, we should take a quick word of application. The reality is this, even if we grant Rebecca's best intentions, Rebecca thinks that God needs her help in order to accomplish His purposes. God said that the older shall serve the younger, and Rebecca thinks if my, if my husband blesses the older, then God's word won't come to pass. So I have to do something to make sure that that doesn't happen and she thinks that God not only needs her help, but needs her manipulation. Listen, friends, 
This is a very clear point. God can fulfill His purposes for you without your help. And He can definitely fulfill His purposes for you without your disobedience. What should we say about that? We don't need to sin in order to accomplish God's purposes. So we can't say to ourselves, God intends for global missions to advance all over the place. I want to fund global missions, so I'm going to rob a bank to fund missions. No. No, the ends don't justify the means. In other words, in our ethical dilemmas, we usually present it this way. But see clearly, God can use our disobedience to still accomplish His purposes, but His will is that we obey in order to accomplish His purposes. God doesn't need Rebecca to violate her husband's trust to accomplish His will. Third, what about Esau? It's easy to just feel sorry for Esau in all of this scenario anyway. He was busy out hunting, doing what his father did, and he's at, while he's out hunting and preparing a stew, his brother's scheming along with his mom to connive against the blessing that Esau thinks is due to him. He's just cheated out of a blessing after all, isn't he? But Esau himself is participating in his father's plan to make an end around the purposes and word of God, to take a blessing for himself that is not his to have. Esau is willing to enter into the plan of Isaac to take the blessing from Jacob. He's already sold off his birthright two chapters ago, and it's clear that what Esau wants is the material benefits of being in this family, but he is not concerned with the spiritual benefits of being in this family. In other words, he sold off his birthright because he didn't care. And he's willing to participate in all of this because the consequences of righteousness and unrighteousness don't seem to matter to him. And we can maybe draw out to the conclusion that, that if Esau really cared about the spiritual benefits of being in the covenant, then after all of this happened, he would have gone to Jacob as the blessed son and said, brother, let's be in relationship together. I want to be near to you and I want to have a relationship with you and be blessed of you because you are blessed of our father. But he doesn't do that. In fact, if you look forward into verse 41, it's Esau's plan to kill his brother. So birthright sold off, blessing negated. It's time to kill my older twin brother is Esau's plan. Well, that's number three. What about person four, Jacob? Jacob, the third generation patriarch. We know that it's God's purpose that the covenant line would go from Abraham to Isaac to Jacob. And based on that knowledge, we assume that Jacob is to be some kind of line-keeping, toe-keeping-the-line-constantly-obeying spiritual superhero. And is he? No. Jacob's name, all the way back from Genesis 25, actually means heel-grabber. When Rebekah gives birth to the twins, yes, Esau comes out first. But Jacob comes with his hand on his brother's heel, and his name means heel grabber or deceiver because Jacob is constantly tripping other people up to get his own way. It's who he is. He's a schemer. He's a deceiver. He's no innocent person in this narrative. He even goes so far as to invoke God's own name in lying to his father when he says, I am Esau, lying about his identity to his own father. Listen also very quickly by way of uh, application to us. 
One of the things that, one of the things, one of the things that Jacob is greatly deceived of, that you and I are often deceived of too, is that we can sin, think we're getting away with it, and assuming we're not going to get hurt by it. One of the greatest deceptions of us, fallen people though we are, is that we think disobedience has no consequence. Immediately or immediately, we think we can just do as we will, get away with it, and it doesn't matter. But you know that that's not true. So I think, I think we should say, or say to myself, I say it to, to, to each and every one of us, I think God's Word is saying to us that if you find yourself in a pattern of disobedience and sin, you need to turn from it. Especially if you think it won't have an effect on you because it will. We deceive ourselves into thinking that sin has no consequence. Jacob is wrong here. And what happens, what happens from him looking ahead is essentially brother will be set against brother to the point of death. Jacob, in thinking he's securing this blessing and birthright, he's actually going to have to be sent away from his home, sent away from his uh, family resources. He's going to have to go over to a far-off country from his mother's homeland and live with his uncle Laban, who's going to turn out to be a bigger schemer than the ultimate schemer, Jacob. Jacob is going to be subject to the consequences of his actions throughout the rest of his life. Isaac, Rebecca, Esau, Jacob, not an innocent person to be found. So what's the good news in this text? We should first linger on the fact, does any of this surprise you? Does any of this drama surprise you? The Bible is not a fairy tale book of a bunch of superheroes. It is a narrative of a fallen and broken and sinful world with only one hero. And we know that by now, surely, but it's interesting how we come to these various texts and we evaluate these characters and think, oh, shame on them. Tisk tisk. So what do we take from this by way of a blessed redemption? There is a blessed mess. There is an absolute sense of boundless guilt. What about blessed redemption? What do we do with this passage? Let me, first, let me first suggest what we don't do, uh, because I think it is oftentimes the case that we run this direction. We, don't, we do not moralize the Bible. We do not moralize the Bible. If we moralize the Bible, then the application for this sermon should be, don't manipulate your siblings into securing your parents' blessing in their place. Okay, That's not the point of application for this sermon. No, you should not do that. No, you should not pretend to be your older sibling to get something from your parents. Don't do that. That's bad. But that's not the point of this text. That's moralism. Moralism says do this, don't do that. And moralism is not the gospel. So what is the gospel? And how is the gospel found in this text? Well, you have to look closely and you have to look far off into the horizon because... Even though Isaac is presented here as really quite foolish, dim both of sight and spiritual sense, you know the book of Hebrews commends Isaac. The book of Hebrews commends Isaac in that great chapter 11, the Hall of Faith chapter, and says, by faith Isaac invoked future blessing on Jacob. 
Isaac didn't know he was doing it. Isaac was totally deceived about which son was receiving the blessing. But Isaac is praised in the pages of the New Testament for invoking the blessing such to say that even though he tried to give it to the wrong person, he believed in the principle of the blessing. He believed in the concept of the covenant. He believed in the truth that by giving a blessing, he would provide generational confidence in the promises of God. He believed in God's promise, in other words. For all of his dim sight and dim-witted spiritual sense, he believed in God's covenant. And that covenant is primarily the promise of a Redeemer. The same promise as old as the garden. The same promise given to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Moses and David. A promise that is found that in the midst of a long line of people is a story of a fallen world in need of redemption. And this story that's ridden with drama and hostility and strife is in need of healing. This family is in need of grace and forgiveness and it's not going to come from any one of them because they are not the hope of redemption. Isaac, Rebekah, Esau, Jacob, not a single one of them is the Messiah. Neither one of them will bring life and forgiveness and vitality and eternal life. It's going to come from outside of themselves. Just like salvation has to come from outside of you, it has to come from outside of this broken family. Because it's all broken. We need something or better someone from outside of us to heal and restore and bring redemption and forgiveness. And Genesis 27 is crying out how long till the promised son will arrive to deliver the brokenness of this family. And the answer is it's going to take several thousand years at this point. But that promised son is coming. And of course, he has already come. Only Jesus Christ makes Genesis 27 good news. Else, it's just a bunch of drama of a family that's going to be torn apart. Jesus Christ can heal His own family drama. And you know what? He can heal your family drama too. He can. But it's going to take a while. And it may take a while. But the important lesson that we draw from this text is that God's purposes for man's ultimate good cannot be frustrated by human frailty and failure and sin. You cannot keep God's plan to bless you from coming to pass by way of your disobedience. Your disobedience is factored into God's sovereign purposes to bless you such that through your wandering and through your misstepping and through your walking away from the narrow path and being brought back to again and again and again, God's purpose is to bless you in Christ and you cannot frustrate God's grace from being accomplished in your life. That's good news, isn't it? That for all of our wandering and misstepping, We cannot rewrite the story that God has already written for us. That in spite of their sin, and even through their sin, God can and will still accomplish all that He has planned to bring about His promised Redeemer, not from a perfect, picture-perfect lineage of well-behaved people, but from a long line of sinners. Long line of sinners. This chapter says God's people are in need of a Redeemer. 
There are also other ways that we can see the foreshadowings of this reality. Because it's Rebecca's plan to clothe Jacob in clothes that don't belong to him. And wasn't Jesus Christ at his crucifixion clothed with robes that weren't his? Foreshadowing this reality. And don't we hear Rebecca saying to Jacob, let the curse be upon me. And isn't that exactly what Jesus Christ is doing when He suffers and dies, saying to His people, let your curse fall upon Me. There are reverberations and shadows and echoes of Gospel truth in the text, and we have to see them because a growing grasp of the Gospel will result in us coming to passages like this, and instead of asking, who's to blame here? We instead approach the text and see fellow sinners in need of grace. And when we see fellow sinners in need of grace, then we turn to the One who has come to redeem sinners. Sinners like Isaac and Rebekah and Jacob and sinners like me and sinners like you. And that's why Christ has come, the promised Son, to deliver His people who without Him would be in an absolute mess. But with Him, God writes perfection into the story of His grace that through the mess that we create, He's able to do a wonderful thing. Friends, this text is full of encouragement for us if we approach it the right way. And the greatest encouragement is to see and trust in Jesus Christ as He is offered to us in the Gospel. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank You. We thank You for Your Word and its truth, and we pray that that You would take these words and plant them deeply into us, that we might trust that all of Your ways are good and right, and that for all of our wandering and all of our foolishness, we would again return to You, the only sovereign God, and walk in accord with Your ways and obedience to You to give praise to Jesus Christ, the only Lord and our Savior who has redeemed us. We offer these things in His name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this sermon. If you would like more information about our church or its ministries, please visit edgingtonepc.org. May God bless and keep you.